Welcome to White Shores, the podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. Let me invite you to walk once more beside me on White Shores to talk about the real meaning of life and the true power of what is unseen. Let's discuss dreams, intuition, manifesting, as above, so below, angels, afterlife, the science of consciousness, and other infinite possibilities within and all around you. I hope every episode informs, inspires, and illuminates. So, now the scene is set, allow the grey rain curtain of this world to roll back and all to turn to silver glass. Let's walk barefoot together on the gentle, glistening sands of white shores to see what mystery lies beyond the material. Thank you for arriving safely on white shores, a far green country under a swift sunrise. My guest today is none other than Gary Lachman. He's a well-known author, lecturer and philosopher, and his many books about the links between consciousness, culture and the Western esoteric condition include Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, Caretakers of the Cosmos, and his latest book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, which really caught my eye. Um, As you know, I've written extensively about precognition and researched it, and I can't wait to discuss that, but also one of his books about Russia as well. We will certainly be delving into that. And he happens to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but, you know, all that kind of pales into comparison to what he's doing now, which is extraordinarily fascinating. And I'm thrilled you're here today, Gary. Hello. Oh, hello. Hello, Teresa. Uh, Yes, uh, it's my pleasure to be on. It's 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 absolute delight to talk to you. Thank you. Um, for people new to you, um, would you just man just do a little bit about your story and how you've got to this point in your life when you are becoming such a key voice in this uh, area of precognition, the science of consciousness, etc. Uh, well, um, you mentioned um, uh, earlier career as a musician. A musician. This was many years ago uh, in New York and Los Angeles. Um, you know, I'm from the States, but <clears throat> I've lived in London now since 96. So I'm, I'm a Londoner. I think I've lived here longer in one place than I have anywhere else, or at least in one city. Um, not in one place in London. <laughs> Moved around quite a bit. Uh, but uh, no, I, back in the day, I played in Blondie. That, that was the band I, I first played in and I had um, my own band for a while. And then I also played with um, Iggy Pop. And this this was all between about 1975 and uh, 1980, 81, 82. But during that time, I became interested in the sorts of things that I later went on to write about. And in fact, when I was with Blondie, um, I wrote a song about the sort of shared dreaming experiences I was having with my girlfriend at the time and these sort of telepathic experiences we were having. And um, I became aware of this because I had started reading all this sort of thing. I I read a book, uh, the book that had the big influence on me is a book called The Occult. And it was by Colin Wilson, uh, who's a British writer. He died um, almost about 10 years ago now, 2013. Uh, his first book was called The Outsider, and it was a study of existentialism mm-hmm. and, and sort of alienated geniuses and things of that sort. But he later went on in the 70s and through the 80s and up, up and even until the 2000s, he wrote an enormous amount, writing about consciousness and mysticism and uh, intense states of, 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 of experience and so on and so on. And in the occult, it was a, a very well-written history 
of it from the earliest sort of you know prehistoric times up into you know relatively contemporary times, but from a very philosophical and psychological um, point of view. So it wasn't just a collection of ghost stories. Long story short, I became just fascinated with it, and I wound up writing this song. Uh, it was called "I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear," and I think it's the only song that has uh, the word uh, theosophy. Um, in the lyrics, and uh, it's also about, like I said, these t- telepathic experiences. So that was a big hit in the UK, not so much in the States, UK and Europe, uh, longer ago than I care to admit, but quite some time ago. Um, but when I left music in the early 80s, um, went on to go to university, I studied philosophy, I tried to find some place for myself in a variety of different places. Um, but I slowly wound up writing about this kind of thing. And since I moved here in 96, um, I've written about 24 books. So it kind of, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, life, I'm, I'm sort of a good example of life begins at 40 or at least the second life kind of way, or, uh, Jung's ideas about adult development, how you can have a creative later part of life. It isn't all over, you know, after middle age. I couldn't agree agree more. I think everything before that is research, isn't it? And then, mm. you know, actually I love getting older. I always say that on this podcast because of the the wisdom and the, the mm. knowledge and 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 just every day becomes so exciting because you're growing in knowledge. But that's another story. But you touched on Colin Wilson, and mm. I'm glad you did actually because I remember going to the College of Psychic Studies in London and hearing him talk, and I went to chat with him afterwards actually. Mm. Um, and uh, I loved the Outsider, um, but also the idea of the ladder of selves. Mm, mm you know, the, the past self, the future self, and you're always going up this ladder. I just fell in love with that idea as a young person obsessed mm. with everything psychic. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> what are your thoughts about that, the ladder? Oh, yeah, right? yeah. Well, this, this is uh, something he develops in a book called Mysteries, and this was yeah. sort of the follow-up to the occult. And uh, that came out in 1978, and I, remember, I actually remember buying a copy of that in New York at a bookshop, and my friend was amazed that I would spend whatever it was, $15 on a hardcover book. I mean, we were, you know, broke uh, punk rockers. You know? <laughs> and, uh, 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 why didn't I steal it, you know, maybe? But, uh, um, uh, and it's this idea that, um, well, it came to him during a series of panic attacks uh, he had um, uh, after the, because the, the, occult, the occult was a bestseller for him again. The Outsider was a bestseller and he, he went into just repute. Wasn't he sleeping on a bench before? Well, that was like, I, I mean, uh, the famous story, and it was true that when he was writing, um, well, not the outsider, but it's associated with that. But around the same time, he was writing his first novel, Ritual in the Dark. And to save money and to not have to work or to work at only as much as he needed, um, he decided that he would sleep in a tent on Hampstead Heath. Um, and then he yeah. decided he didn't even need the tent. He just needed a waterproof sleeping bag. So what he would do is he would find a spot, sleep. I guess, it, I guess he would get up at the dawn or whatever, or, or a dog sniffing at him or something. Then he'd get on his bike and he said he would cycle down. I don't know. I guess it's cycling down Harvestock Hill or something like that. And um, wait until the British the museum opened. This is before he had the British Library or the British Library was in the museum. It's this wonderful old you know room that had this fantastic dome. And people like Marx and Bernard Shaw and Ruskin and others had all worked in there. So Wilson would go there and spend the day, as long as it was open, working and writing and reading. And then he then he was working, I think, a, you know, a, a milk bar, or a cafe, a cafe in, in the Haymarket. And and then he would just, whatever, spend the 
hang out as long as he had to until he could go back up and find a place to sleep. And this went on, you know, for some months. But this is the legend because he he really was an outsider in the sense that um, he had this, I should say, this profound need or appetite or urge to have this intense kind of experience um, that everyday life, you know, didn't afford him. And all the regular jobs, they were just sort of this mechanical, you know, boring, stupefying routine. Um, and he refused to, you know, put up with that. And he would take all different kinds of jobs. You know, he took manual labor jobs and, you know, he, he worked on a farm or he, he was a navvy. He just, he, anything just to make as much money as he could to keep going for a while. And he had this total belief in himself. Uh, again, he was writing for mm-hmm. about 10 years before, uh, he sent just the first few chapters of The Outsider to, um, publisher and, um, Rags to riches, the publisher read it and said, "Yes, we'll publish this. You know, uh, here's some money. Finish it." And it was like, "Absolutely, what? What more confirmation of your belief in yourself? Um, yeah, could, 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 could you need?" So, yeah, so that inspired me later on when I came on, I uh, discovered his his work in the in the mid seventies. So about twenty years after he wrote these Outsider, I, I, I discovered it. Yeah, very, very influential figure and seminal work. And and, and and I want to talk about you, not him, but I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. linger on But I'm just going to say, you talked about the ladder of selves, and that's just an idea. He, had, he went through these panic attacks um, in the early 70s when um, he just would suddenly have a, a horrible sense of anxiety. Um, yeah. And, he, you know, he thought he was going to have a heart attack or a stroke or something. And uh, he, he came to this understanding that it was like an immature part of himself or a, a younger or a, smaller or lower down on this ladder of self part of himself that was yeah. rebelling against all the all the hard work uh and and he said well if there is this sort of immature self of, of me that i rationally know shouldn't be acting like that but it's acting like a spoiled child there must be a, a higher kind of one and so he developed a sort of way of through understanding it but also you know kind of not necessarily meditations or exercises but certain sorts of you know ways of calming himself that he he finally conquered this and i mean yeah this is how he's, he's totally he's, te- he's definitely about an evolutionary view and that's that that's the thing that made the most impact on me um about yeah and you've often been compared to him now from what i, what well, I, I mean it's, it's kind of not you know not 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 yeah uh, so the next colin wilson they're always very keen aren't they in publishing yeah. to well it could be worse i mean i said i'm 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 just glad to be carrying on and i've uh, been able to write about these ideas you know but, um, and and I'm glad you, in a way, you use that word occult. A lot mm-hmm. of my listeners may 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 sort of like get tingles when you say that. That word has such negative mm-hmm. associations, doesn't it? And it's interesting because we're recording it a couple of days after Nicola Sturgeon here mm-hmm. apologized to oh, all right. the witches that were were persecuted and burnt at the stake in the 15th and 16th century for the occult and witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what is your understand? Why is Obviously, we know why because yeah. the link with, with evil and the devil. Yeah, yeah. But this word, the cult. Well, a cult really just—it just, it, it just means hidden. Uh, It's—it's—it's yeah. a—it's a term from optics. You know, it's an ocular term. Uh, so when when the moon passes between us, the Earth and the Sun, and causes uh, an eclipse, it occludes the Sun. Um, so that's really what it means. And up until relatively recent times, say the 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 past three or four centuries. The idea that there were realities that were not visible, they, they weren't sensory. They were somehow of a different nature, but they were equally real. And in fact, more real 
you know, in a kind of hierarchy of, of being. They were spiritual, they were of, of, of the essence of things in the material world and the sensory world was a kind of lower stage of it, a, a, a kind of ladder of being in the same way that we were talking about a ladder of selves. Um, mm. And that, with the rise of what we know as science, all that sort of went out the window and, and, and it's been eclipsed and the only thing real, real now, we consider to be is something that could be, you know, physically quantified and measured and all that. But a cult just, it meant those the sciences of, of, of those things that are not part of the sensory world. It almost means the same thing in philosophy as metaphysics. Metaphys- yeah. Metaphysics just means that which isn't physics. Physics was, you know, about the, the world, the sensory world, insofar as the ancient Greeks or whatever had a kind of science in physics. But meta, in Aristotle's work, was like, this is the stuff that came after what he wrote about the physics, or this is, you know. So... It, it means another stage, or, and um, this is where you get into essences and abstractions and things of that sort. But um, and what's happened in popular culture or uh, uh, sociologically is that it, because of Christianity and uh, other things, it's become associated, you know, with Satanism. And you know, I mean, if you go in a tube an occult bookshop it's like everything's there flying saucers satanists which is you know mm. ceremonial manic uh, magic yeah, parapsychology right. it's just kind of weird stuff you know <laughs> it's basically the umbrella umbrella term and then if you go into it it's as varied um as anything else you go oh i'm going to go to a museum to look at some art well what can that mean that can mean anything from primitive you know artifacts discovered to you know the latest post post whatever it is these days installation so yeah, I like art, and then well, what art? Art so the occult or magic? These once you get into it or start to understand it, it has a, a very varied, you know, structured, um, as you say it, uh, character. So uh, occult is just like a big term to to cover all of that stuff. It's just what's hidden, and that there's more to this life than meets the eye. And that brings me nicely onto your latest book. And actually, actually, that's how I, I thought I must talk to you because. I wrote a couple of years ago a book called The Premonition Code with neuroscientist Dr. Julian Mossbridge. And um, for that, we have a a scientific way of training precognition, the the scientific way, which is interesting, sort of an experiment. But we have a telegram group associated with that. And, um, of course, I I follow that telegram group because these are people like training with the premonition code. And the, the group chat there just exploded with Gary Lachman. Gary Lachman, I kept on hearing this. So it's the Telegram group, oh, <laughs> the, you know, the Premonition Code um, group there. And uh, so I, I, I realized I – and then you'd written the book and I read it and I loved it. It's really engaging. Mm. Highly recommend mm. it if you're listening, everyone. It's called Dreaming Ahead of Time. Um, if you're interested in precognition, the possibility of potential futures, um, your future self, I, I really, really, really do recommend it. But could you just tell us – about it, Gary, and and the story of how it came to be. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's basically an account of my own experiences with precognitive dreams, and also synchronicity, which is meaningful coincidence, and also coincidences that aren't necessarily so meaningful, but they're you know just strange and uh, you know amazing in their own in their own right. And I came to write the book um, after giving a talk here in London at Brompton Cemetery a few years back, uh, just before COVID uh, arrived. Did you say cemetery? Yeah, the, seven, the Brompton Cemetery, yeah. 
Oh right, okay. as you do. Yeah. Oh well, there's there's a, there's a, a wonderful there's a group here uh, called the Curious Invitation, and they do a variety of um, site specific events. So was it outdoors? Sorry. Well, well it, it, they have a chapel. There's a chapel there. There's uh, the the, oh, right. the, okay. the, the like dissenters chapel. Okay. Aptly enough, they're held at the dissenters chapel in in Brompton cemetery so it's it's indoors but you know it's it's um uh, and they, they do they do a london month of the dead and they also did something that this talk was about was um a part of was something called the borderlands of sleep so there are talks about dreams and somnambulism and trance states and all that and i gave a talk about hypnagogia which is the in-between state between sleeping and waking so we each experience it um you know twice a day or whenever we go to sleep and wake up you pass through it. Uh, most of us pass through it without noticing anything. Some of us do notice. You might hear a voice or see images. You can, but you can learn to hover in that state, and you can start to see dreams form in front of you and, and other strange things and see faces talking to you. But it's also a state that um, seems to be peculiarly uh, uh, open for precognitive experiences or other paranormal ones. So at the end of this talk, I tagged on some accounts of precognitive dreams I had. And I've been collecting them, writing them down since 1980. So uh, for the past 42 years now, I've, I've, been, I've been writing them down. And what had happened, um, I, I just told the story. I mean, how I started doing it was that I read a book called An Experiment with Time that came out in the 1920s, and it's by a fellow named J.W. Dunn. And Dunn wasn't an occultist or anything like that. He was an aeronautics um, engineer. But he himself discovered just by chance that he had these dreams in which bits of the future, bits of his own future. This was the thing. It's not, you don't, in these dreams, you're not hovering above, you know, the future and looking out at a vast landscape of a variety of different events. It's your own personal future, what you'll read in the newspaper, what, you know, who you'll bump into on the street, what you'll watch on the news these days or, or whatever on, on your Twitter feed or social media whatever it is. So, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, there you go. It gets to the point. So I said, all you have to do uh, as uh, Dunn did, I mean, it's too long of a story to explain how he came to understand it. And I tell it in the book is just write your dreams down, write your dreams down. Um, and, you know, pay attention to what goes on in your everyday life as well. So I decided to do that. And lo and behold, he was right. So I tell the story in the book about you know, these very early precognitive dreams I had when I was still a musician in New York. So I told this story at the end of the talk. And the next day, speaking of Twitter, when I went on to Twitter, I saw a post from someone who had been at the talk. And she said, OMG, and, you know, exclamation mark, you know, exclamation mark. Oh, yes, I went to this talk and he was right. I dreamed the future. And what she had said was that, she dreamt that uh, she had picked a hedgehog up off the street, put it on the pavement, you know, to get it out of the way of traffic. And the very first thing she saw that morning when she went onto Twitter on her Twitter feed was a post about a tweet about how to protect the hedgehogs. Hmm. Um, and so <laughs> I wrote back to her and I said, well, that, that's how it is. Often it isn't exactly the future, but it's close enough and it's subject to what I call symbolic distortion. So and rightly so because dreams speak a symbolic language most of the time. But some some future dreams can be exact, 
you know, exact. And I have accounts of those as well. So when that happened, I thought, you know, maybe I should just pull all this stuff together. I ha- I've been having these dreams for, for decades now, uh, writing them down. I've mentioned them a few places. I wrote an article some years ago for Quest magazine in the States about them. I mentioned them in my book on Jung, but I didn't sort of say, okay, what is this all about? And I seem to be peculiarly, uh, I should we say blessed or whatever with this because I have quite a bit of them. And they're always about trivial things. I have to make it clear. It's not a prediction. It's not a premonition. I don't, I never wake up knowing that something I dreamt is going to happen or worrying whether I should call a friend or not, you know, or not go on that, that flight this week or something like that. It's later on in the day or the next day. One account is it's, it's years. Um, what I had dreamt was, oh, my God, there it is. So I sort of bump into it and think, oh, there it happened again. Um, and so it's about my accounts with them and also looking into the nature of dreams. Um, just said how, you know, we, they use a symbolic language, the nature of time, which once you start thinking about it, slips through our fingers. <laughs> until we, what is at, time? Well, well, yeah, I, I mean, had a whole chapter about what is time in, in my book from a scientific scientist don't even know. Well, nobody knows. It's one of those things that St. Augustine said, if you don't ask the question, I know the answer to it. So if you don't ask me what is time, I know exactly what it is. It's it's what we only have another 20 minutes of or whatever. You know what I mean? But as soon as you say, well, what is time in itself, then, well, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's, it, it's, we can't grasp it, and yet it's inescapable. So it's one of these imponderables that we nevertheless uh, can't help but ponder on. And awaken the sense of mystery, just the very fact that, you know, we're here now existing. Uh, absolutely. And I love the idea of the, the, it, what you talk about in the book as well, about potential futures, your future self. Mm, mm. Are you of the school of thought that maybe our future selves are our guardian angels or looking out for us? Uh, your future self can be there for your present self? Uh, I mean, I, I, I know that idea. And um, I mean, I've read, you know, there's different uh, writers. I mean, there's a fellow today, uh, Eric Wargo, um, wrote a book called Time yeah. Loops. And um, I read Time Loops, seven of the others. But I know he has some sense in which there's our, our, it's our brain in the future is sending messages to our brain now somehow. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, Guardian Angel sounds okay to me. But, you know, uh, figure of speech at the same time, well, I mean, I, I, I think I, in terms of synchronicities, because the, the sort of the, because the precognitive experiences, they tend to be, you said, they're t- mostly to be trivial. One, a few times they actually something that, you know, uh, had, um, how should we say it, some kind of meaning um, and uh, uh, were purposive, I would say. But more times than not, it's like, why did, why did I dream that particular thing? Mm. Um, so, um, but with synchronicities, these are the ones where I just feel like, I can't escape the feeling that someone or something or somehow uh, an intelligence of some sort knows exactly what I'm thinking about <laughs> now <laughs> and has put this thing right in front of me now. And uh, unless I'm complete dullard, I have to think, how could that have happened? Uh, I mean, one of the ones yeah. I talk about in the book is a recent one. And we, we mentioned Colin Wilson, so I'll bring him into it. As I was on my way to give a talk about his book, The Outsider, here in London. Again, this is just before COVID, uh, to the Theosophical Society. And um, on the way, I realized, oh, I needed something, and I just popped into the local market. And when I was in the queue, <clears throat> I looked over at the magazine rack, and the magazines were you know, uh, so stacked that all I could see of the cover of Vogue uh, was, the, I knew it was Vogue, and then it was the title of a lead article. And the title of the article was The Outsider. 
So I was on my way to give a talk about it. I looked over it and, I, and said, I, and so, and I was in a rush. So I, I, I what if it couldn't be, you know, <laughs> I was next in the queue. So I couldn't, I couldn't bend over and check to see what it was. But later on, after I gave the talk that same day, I, 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 there was something else I needed. So I went back into the same market and I said, you know, let me check that copy of Vogue. What was that about? You know, it couldn't have been about the book and it was gone because they had changed and brought in the new, the new issues. So if I hadn't popped in on my way, I wouldn't have seen it. So is your dream creating your waking life or your waking life impacting the dream? Or are we the butterfly or are we the... Yeah, I know that's... <laughs> yeah. I, know that's uh, I don't know. I mean, um, that's a good question. You got a few more hours of this? We could go with this. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, um, I, I, I tend to think, you know, I'm, how should we say it, me now talking to you, uh, yeah. I'd say my left brain ego, I, because we associate with the the verbal, uh, the one, the one that uses language, the other, the other side of us, the, our neighbor, uh, speaks in a different way, symbols, body, you know, body sensations, you know, hunches and things of that sort. I, I think it's a, the traffic is coming from there to us, you know, the traffic's coming to me and I'm like, okay, what, what does this mean? What, what I, I, cause I'm not making the dream up, you know, I'm, I, I, and I know there's lucid dreaming. We could we could go into that, but I, in a way, I'm I'm more of a naturalist. So I I, I want I want to see what it or he or she. I mean, I I, I, I tend to think it's more of a who than a what. Um, Edgar, mm. Edgar, you know, I don't know <laughs> what, what's what's he up to now, and what is he trying to get across to me? Or it could be she? What is she trying to get across to me? Whatever. Mm. Um, so because I've come to recognize an intelligence, so um, and that's enough for me to begin with you know, uh, to try to, mm. you know, go, go with, go with that. Um, and again, it's not to give over your volition and everything to the dream because th- th- that's not what the dream wants either. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I, I tend to accept Jung's notion of sort of this com- com- compensatory, you know, uh, uh character, uh, to the dream. It's, it's sort of adding what, what we ourselves don't know or, or, yeah, and, and- I found, of course, you know, the more you delve into all this, the more everything starts to feel dreamlike. I certainly get that. I mean, talking to you here now, mm-hmm. of course, like many of my listeners, I would have heard Blondie and I loved, you know, right, right, right. I love the song Touched by Your Presence, Dear. And mm. then I'm, I'm thinking right now, I'm doing all the reality checks. Is this mm-hmm. a dream, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, they did a later song, "Dreaming." I wasn't, I wasn't on that, but they also had another hit with a song called "Dreaming." So, I mean, I mean, this is the yeah. thing. I mean, once, but I think once you start, this is time. Yeah. Time reflecting on time can lead into this kind of sort of state too, where you seem to be hovering, uh, or or what what had seemed stable um, suddenly seems a bit, you know, uh, more tenuous. And um, I know, yeah, I mean, there's. Sometimes I go to what I call sort of patches of sort of synchronicities or something where the whatever membrane sep- separates my everyday waking consciousness from the, the unconscious or whatever whatever it is that's responsible or is involved with these sorts of things is it's it's perforated it's a it's a bit more porous and it does seem to kind of float uh, in and out mm. um, you know so, um, yeah sorry. Thank- I do want to thank you, though, for drawing attention to this, you know, this kind of deja vu experience that many of us would have had with our dreams. Because mm. often when I when I talk about dreams, I'm going to talk about a lot of topics in this area, but whenever dreams, people say deja vu dreams where they've had a dream and then it plays out. And mm-hmm. you, you are really bringing 
awareness to this. So mm-hmm. thank you, thank mm-hmm. you for doing yeah, that. Yeah. Um, because that is a sign that we are infinitely mysterious beings, <laughs> isn't it? And um, what is going on there? But I, you also touched on the fact that a lot of your dreams about the future are trivial. Mm. However, you did write a book, didn't you? Oh yeah, but I, 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 I mean, trivial not Russia. in the sense that they're not. But, but the, the, I mean, the ones that we know about. You know, we hear about are the that I call they're they're the disasters or the Darby dreams. So you hear about the disaster dreams, mm. you know, or you hear about the dreams where somebody picks a winner at, at the Darby or something like that. Mm. But if you read, um, I'm sure you have, and if you go into books about precognition, and I mean, going back, say, you know, um, to Rhine, you know, J.B. Rhine and uh, his wife Louisa Rhine, she wrote a book about precognition, and, and so on. So back to the 30s, 40s, and all that. They all say, you know, the majority of accounts, and even early, even as early as Catherine Crow, you know, in the in the 1800s, who wrote this wonderful book called The Night Side of Nature, that's an early classic of para, what we call parapsychology. She even says that, you know, most accounts of these sort of future dreams, she didn't use the word precognitive, um, tend to be about. They don't tend to be about, you know, the very imp- important, you know, big dramatic sort of events they uh, you know someone someone dreamt the oh uh, she was telling her children oh i had this funny dream about a pig being in the living room uh and then you know the one girl came down the stairs and opened the door and said mom look what happened you know the pigs in the living room so it's something like that so yeah i mean you might you might you might mine that and maybe your jungian through amplification could find some but in the immediate kind of thing it's sort of so it's not to downplay it it's, it's just it's a strange phenomenon it's like why is it the case and i i when i would say i tend to think it's like it, it, it's just a tap on the shoulder by whatever the guardian angel or future self whoever it might be reminding us that life is not as straightforward um no, and 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 you know um sewn up as, as as we tend to think it is and you know I said I'm a bit of a naturalist, and I think this is another thing too. Maybe in this, because we tend to uh, losing more and more of the, the wilderness in the sense of some untouched part of the world that hasn't uh, been, you know, sort of humanized. Maybe in ourselves, this is this is some area where it's coming out more. Because uh, I, you know, because having done the book and having done talks, I've as one does, I, I've got a lot of correspondence from people saying, oh, my God, I read your book, and I couldn't believe it. Yes, I've had these dreams in my life or something like that. And this this is what tends to happen everyone else who's done, um, you know, more popular than me, people like J.B. Priestley or Arthur Kessler, when they, they back, you know, again, this is back in the 60s and 70s, they did books about this sort of thing. And they advertised and asked for people to write in, and they got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. You know, I mean, I can't do anything with them, so don't send them to me. I'm not competing with them, but I'm just saying that people people sort of respond to it. You know, like that like that pers- person who went to my talk responded and, and and tweeted about it. You know, well, I'm grateful to, to that lady because it inspired a wonderful book. Um, but you also you seem to have precognitive ability when you're awake as well. I would like to talk about your book about Russia. Oh right, obviously it's dominating. Mm. Mm, the news mm, at the mm. moment could you tell us a bit yeah. about that well it's not so much precognitive in that is that but i did do a, a, a book um came out in 2020 called the return of holy russia before we go any further on white shores i'm just going to jump into this interview to flag up three exciting events 
happening in the middle of April 2022 that you may or may not want to attend or register for. The first event is in person. I will be giving a talk at London Olympia Mind Body Spirit Wellbeing Festival on Sunday, April the 17th at 1:30 p.m. UK time. So that's if you're UK based, something you might want to attend. The other two events are both online and both of them you need to register for a place to attend. The first takes place on Saturday, April the 16th at 7pm UK time and it's run by The Den Meditation. They are hosting an online workshop led by yours truly called Dreaming Big Under the Moon. To register for your place, simply go to The Den Meditation and type in Teresa Chung, Dreaming Big Under the Moon. And then the third and final event I want to flag up for you taking place in the middle of April 2022 is an entire week of dream work interviews with leading experts in dream analysis, dream decoding, um, that is being hosted by the Shift Network. And they have given me the honor of asking me to co-host this incredibly ambitious, exciting event about dream power and dream work and I'll be interviewing the likes of Charlie Morley, Claire Johnson and other leading experts and pioneer in dream power. It starts on April the 18th and runs right through that entire week. Now you do need to register for a place and if you register um, and watch the interviews within the first 48 hours of them being broadcast, that is entirely free for you. I do hope you take advantage of that because you're going to learn an awful lot. I certainly did interviewing all these amazing people and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Um, anyway, that's enough. Those three events that I flagged up, I do hope there's something there for you. Um, and I do hope to see some of you there, if not in person or online. I know you're going to be there in spirit. Okay, back to the interview now. And Ooh. this is about um, some of the sort of religious and spiritual, and we could even say, you know, mystical and getting into sort of occult or esoteric uh, influences or, you know, ideas that uh, uh, permeate sort of Russian history itself, but um, yeah. uh, in more recent times are percolating uh, in the Kremlin. Um, and one of the things that I, I talk about in the book, this notion of Holy Russia, Russia had this character of being, you know, the last bastion of Christianity. Um, uh, it, it called itself the third Rome. This is back in the, you know, 15th mm. century um after you know rome original rome fell to the barbarians in whatever the seventh century or something whatever it is and then in 1453 constantinople which was the head of the second you know the eastern empire uh roman empire but that was sort of the uh head of the place of, of the the eastern church the greek orthodox church that fell to the turks and then moscow at that point was becoming the dominant power in a Russia that had just escaped from the Mongol yoke and it, it t had taken on the mantle of the third Rome and this throughout a great deal of its history. I mean, all of Ru Russian history, it's, it's totally connected to uh, uh, the church, to Orthodox Christianity. I mean, one of the reasons why Kiev is very important um, among many others is that that's more or less where Russia as a single entity began 
in in the mm-hmm. late late 900s when Vladimir I, um, who was the king, the ruler of, they were known as the Kievan Rus. They were the, the Rus were the Russian people there. He converted to uh, Greek Orthodox. And then he went around converting the rest of his people and all that. And that's when the Russians had this complete identity as, as a people. So the, their identity as a people and, uh, and their religion went, went hand in hand. And mm-hmm. the, again, it's, there's so much going on. I did an earlier book called Dark Star Rising uh, about Trump, magic and power in the age of Trump, um, and about sort of the magic or occult influences that are supposed to be circulating around him. Um, in the background, but also had a chapter about about Russia. And um, there's a whole notion, um, how should we say it, in, well, it's hard, it's hard to put it in, in, very quickly, but one of the things that Russia suffered from uh, after the collapse of the USSR was an identity crisis. Uh, and we know in the mm. 90s that it tried, to, it tried to take on sort of Western free market democracy and all that, and it didn't quite take, it didn't work. It led to the, the oligarchs, and it led to this kind of gang- mm. gangster, gangsterism in politics, out, mm. of, out of which Putin emerged. And this is something yeah. else that's throughout Russian history, where they go periodically into these periods of chaos, and a strong man emerges and pulls it all together. It's the gathering in of the lands. Either it's Ivan the Terrible, or it's, you know, whatever, Peter the Great, or it's, you know, whatever. Um, and, um, this is something that, um, Putin has done is to, to give the Russian people a sense of identity again. I mean, whether he believes in any of this or not is anybody's guess. I mean, but he has strong ties with the church and all that, but he's associated himself with this notion of, of, of Russia being the bearer of traditional values, true Christianity, um, against the decadent hyper-liberal anything goes West. And uh, this, I'm hoping that, uh, sorry, I'm saying it's, it's very, very complicated, but uh, it, there's a mm-hmm. lot of we tend to think of it only in terms of secular ideas. You know, we, we tend to yeah. think of motivations only in terms of, you know, economy and all that. And of course, those things are important. Of course, they impinge. But there are other kind of motivations that go on that um, many of our analysts just don't get, you know. Um, oh, I know. I mean, well, look at that. They're one of the highest rated shows. We have the, we used, you know, a few years ago, we used uh, to have the X Factor. They had Battle of the Psychics. Uh, uh, was uh, like, uh, you know, where, where psychics would, you know, and that was like the top rated show, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, like the yeah. X Factor was. No, it's all long history. And another thing, it's another thing. And, 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 in, yeah, in yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say I mean, one I of the things the that happened. I hope the younger the future. And well, I was going to say one of the things that happened after the fall of the Soviet Union was all this literature that had been forbidden was was now um, available again, and so yeah. much of it was esoteric and spiritual and magic, and and they even have a whole other kind of science there. I mean, you know, well, the Russians have got in touch with me, you know, because my books, you know, some mm, of them are, are right. translated into Russian. There's there's a they are the power of their belief. They want to believe mm. and follow. Hmm. And my constant message to them is, is you know, because I always try to get people you follow yourself. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And I, I truly hope that the younger generation of Russians will will help and heal hmm. the hmm. world, hmm. Um, and 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 that there will be unity. But anyway, this isn't the podcast to discuss that. But well, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, again, that, that's a, that's a, just to say that's a whole other thing. That's that's a whole other strain and tension in Russian history too. Is that ever since sort of Peter the Great. Um, who started to westernize Russia. There's been a tradition of a, of a kind of westernized or progressive, you know, but it, it, it's in clash against this more totalitarian, you know, um, 
autocratic kind of sensibility. So, um, yeah, you're, any you're case, yeah. Naturally intuitive, precognitive. <laughs> you know, what's your sense of the future between East and West? Are we going to find uh, harmony or at least agree uh, to differ uh, in peace? I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a sensibility. It's 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 not the American century anymore, um, and mm. I, I do think I think I do think it's going to the, the East is going to rise, you know, more and more. I mean, obviously China is, is very very you know powerful, and yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm no political anal- uh, analyst, and I just came mm. by way of writing you know writing this book about Russia um, and the earlier book. Mm. Was, you know, just because it was kind of reportage, and then I saw all this other material. And but I do think um, I don't think Putin's going to be satisfied just with Ukraine. Put it that way. Yeah, I have that sense. Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, like you know what, they, wife, what yeah. they say. Well, what what they said, uh, people have said about yeah. in thirty eight was that if some if people had stood up to him, then um, might not have had the war, but mm. have the nu- the the nuclear threat there so we it's it's it you know it's harder to you know oppose in any kind of um military way without it that that danger mm. i think it's shining a spotlight on all this corruption and the oligarch system and mm. money mm. laundering and everything mm. but i do think numerology is brilliant you know 2022 it's like the universe is screaming at us the answer <laughs> is in the two in the other in communication because mm. two mm. is all about mm. the power of communication and mm. working together to the common good mm. are we getting that message though as a planet i don't mm. know <laughs> well in russian history 100 years ago in 1922 lenin um this uh, he put all of the intellectuals and and cultural figures uh that didn't agree with him on these two boats they were called the philosophy steamers and these were people he couldn't eradicate but he couldn't leave in russia anymore because they would cause too much trouble so he shipped them out and that in a way kind of marked the his kind of solidification of of um you know his takeover uh mm-hmm. and hundred years later <laughs> something yeah. something else is happening uh you know uh, will we ever learn yeah well i don't know uh, slowly i i think slowly and you know it's it, it is it's a slow evolutionary slog um it, it, it nothing's going to happen overnight but um, we've got to keep dreaming yeah that's it <laughs> dreaming in, of peace and unity and harmony you know but anyway, it's been an absolute delight talking to you, Gary. I know you're a very busy man, so thank you. Is there um, um, a portal to your universe, the best way for people to find out about your books and you and to order your books and to look at Dreaming Ahead of Time in particular? Uh, um, well, I mean, I'm on you know Twitter and Facebook, so you can find me there. And uh, I've got a blog. Um, it's just uh, garylockman.co.uk. And, uh, but you know, you, you know, I'm, it's these days it's, it's hard not to find people. <laughs> Thank you. And I always close, um, asking just for a one liner or a quote from a mu- mu- from a movie or a song or a, a book or something that is really life changing for you. And I give my guests because this, this podcast <laughs> kind of like, I, I have this unhealthy obsession with Lord of the Rings. Um, and right. so the, a quote from Lord of the Rings for you is, a single dream is more powerful than a thousand realities. I thought that Tolkien quote kind of like, there's a lot of life wisdom in there. Sounds good to me. In, in the Lord of the Rings. But um, 
that's how this podcast started. Of course, I interviewed scientists researching consciousness, but it's kind of because White Shores is the undying lands, it's Mm. spirit, the invisible and unseen in the Lord of the Rings um, trilogy. It's 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 where the elves and Mm. (laughs) and the dying go. That's why it's White Shores. Mm. Um, so have you got a quote that you could leave us with? Or uh, something? All right. Well, I'll read, this is something that is, I said before about the hypnagogic state, and um, you can hear voices saying something to you. And this is something that was said to me um, in the hypnagogic state. Lord, help me believe in the primary dreams of which my life is made. Oh, can you read that again? Because it's beautiful. All right. Um, Lord, help me believe in the primary dreams of which my life is made. And on that sublime note, Gary Lachman, thank you for all you are and do. It's been an absolute joy talking to you today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you from my heart and soul for being here and walking beside me in spirit on white shores. Sensitive, kind, compassionate souls like you who see beyond the material are needed more than ever today to help this earth heal and evolve. If you have any questions, stories, or insights to share, I absolutely love hearing from you and aim to reply to everyone in due course. My website is www.theresachung.com. My contact email is angeltalk710 at aol.com. And you can message me via my Instagram handle, the Teresa Chung, as well as my Facebook and Twitter author pages. Until we meet again on these white shores, keep being amazing spiritual you, sending my eternal love and gratitude.